Proverbs chapter 23, and we'll read verses 17 through the end of the chapter, 17 to 35 of Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, verse 17, says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine, or with gluttonous eaters of milk. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad, and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely surely she lurks as a robber, and increases the faithless among men. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we continually ask, Father, for you to be the God of all truth for us, Lord, to lead us and to guide us into all wisdom and understanding. Lord, we want to know your will, and Lord, we desire you to teach us and to cause us, Lord, to walk in the ways of righteousness. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Proverbs, Lord, which so clearly lays out for us, Lord, the life of faith, what it is to fear God and how to live before you day in and day out, Lord, in our daily lives. And so, Father, we want our lives to the image of your Son, and so we ask that you would teach us. Lord, not only in our minds, but most importantly, in our hearts, and that you might write the very word upon our hearts, and that we would walk in your ways. So, Lord, teach us and establish us in the truth, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There, Proverbs chapter 23, and we mentioned last time that these sections are broken up in two or three verses, dealing with a theme or a topic uh, concerning wisdom uh, of how it is that we are to live, and we've mentioned this before in the book of Proverbs, we are dealing with the practical implications of the Christian life. Day in and day out, how are we supposed to live? What does our life need to look like? And the book of Proverbs is giving much practical wisdom, what it means to live in the fear of the Lord, because we're going to face various circumstances, various challenges. All of these issues will rise up before us, many temptations that will come our way, and we need to know how to think about these things, how to respond to them, how to live properly in terms of all of these relationships and the way that we live in this present world. And the book of Proverbs is given to us to instruct and to teach us and to guide us into the path of wisdom. There in verse 17, 
one such bit of wisdom that we need to live in this present world. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. There is a propensity, a temptation, even for believers, even those who know the outcome of the ungodly, right? We know that there is a life to come. We know that there's in a hell. We know that this present world is passing away. Yet we live here, and so often our eyes are allured by the things of this world. We look around us, and we begin to be desirous and envious and to crave the things of this world. Well, he tells us, do not envy sinners. Don't let your heart envy sinners. That he's saying this shows that this is a temptation that is common to man. If it's not a temptation for the Christian, then there's no reason for him to address it. But that he's addressing, it shows that this is a temptation that is common to man. For the children of God to look around and to see the wicked living in luxury, living in prosperity, having all the pleasures and comforts of life, and think that I want to be like them, to envy them and to desire that type of life. Right? We're not looking at it holistically. We're not looking at who they are in the sight of God and what will come of them on the day of judgment. We have to look beyond this present life to the life to come and live by faith and not by what we see. And so he is warning us, telling us, don't be envious of sinners. Typically, it is the prosperous sinners. Right? It's not the sinner who's living in the gutter who's there wallowing in his vomit, living on the street because of his addictions to drugs and to alcohol and to other things like that. Nobody envies that person. We look upon him as a miserable man. But when we see the rich and famous, when we see those who have millions and billions of dollars, who are living lives of luxury, of comfort, of ease, who are themselves wicked men, who have no care or thought about the things of God, they, they don't live the Christian life, they give themselves over to all these kinds of things, but when we see their prosperity, there is the temptation to be envious of them and to want that kind of lifestyle and to have the life that they have. But he says, don't do that. We should not be envious of sinners, but we ought to instead live in the fear of the Lord. Live in the fear of the Lord and be content with a simple, quiet Christian life. This is what should be the desire of all believers, right? To live the simple, contented Christian life in the fear of the Lord and not get envious of those who have great prosperity and great wealth. Psalm 37 Psalm 37, verse 1, says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Don't fret, don't be envious of wrongdoers, because what's going to happen to them? Right, Man in his pomp will not endure long. They're all going to fade like the grass, like the green herb. What is going to happen to Jeff Bezos? What's going to happen to Tim Cook? What will happen to Elon Musk? If these men do not repent of their sins and trust in Christ, and even if they do, eventually in this present life, they're going to fade away. All of them are. And they're going to go the way of the earth, just like the millionaires and billionaires of the previous generation. And the previous generation and the generation before that, all the way back to Adam. They will eventually fade like the green grass. And will they take any of their wealth, their money, their gold, their silver, their power and their possessions? These things will not be transferred to them into the life to come. It will stay here in this present world, and then they will stand before God. And if they're not clothed with the righteousness of Christ, 
then they're going to meet a very ill fate on the day of judgment, right? Their situation will not be a favorable situation, but it will be a very desperate, miserable situation in the life to come, like the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man who feasted sumptuously, who was clothed in fine clothes with purple garments, right, who had all the pleasures and comforts, but he passed into the life to come, and he was in a place of torment. Why would we envy a man who's going to go to hell? There's no reason for us unless we're fixated on this present world. And that's the problem. We don't live by faith, we live by sight. It's very hard for us to detach ourselves from this present life because we're here and we have this propensity to live by what we see and not by faith in those unseen realities. But we must continually keep the unseen on our mind and walk by faith and not by sight. We know in Psalm 73... Psalm 73, this was the occasion for the writing of this psalm as well, was his envy of the wicked, of the prosperous wicked. 73 verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There is specifically a prosperity that tempts him and almost leads him to fall in this way. His envy of arrogant men. So don't do this, he says. Don't do that, but instead live in the fear of the Lord. Verse 18, surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. There is a future for the man of God. That meaning a good future, a wonderful future, a glorious future for the man of peace, for the man who lives in the fear of the Lord. There is a future for both the wicked and the righteous. But the future for the wicked is not a good future. It is a miserable future. It is a future of eternal torments and miseries in the lake of fire. But those who fear the Lord, there is a good future waiting for them. And what they hope for in this life will be realized in the life to come. For we know the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked shall perish. It says in Psalm chapter 1, verse 6, verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Here, we have to listen. Listen to the word of God. One must listen intently to the word of God. Listen, not so that it may go in one ear and out the other, but listen so that whatever the word of God is teaching us, we can believe it and we can obey it. Whatever God's word teaches us in terms of faith, in terms of doctrine, we need to believe what the Bible teaches. And whatever it commands us in terms of our obedience, we need to receive it and we need to walk in that way. But all of this requires us to listen attentively to the word of God, not to trust in our own understanding not to trust in the wisdom of the world, not the experts in this present world, the philosophers, the wise men, the scribes, the scholars of this age, right? We have to reject what they say and who is our only teacher. We have only one teacher and who is that teacher? It is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that we must listen to and those who are his, who are his sheep, they hear his voice, they listen to him and they follow him. We must listen and be wise, Receive this wisdom and incorporate it into our life. 20. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. 
For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Here, these two vices, in terms of appetites, are placed side by side. Right? There is the vice of eating, and there is the vice of drinking. And these two things, that in and of themselves, are not necessarily sinful. There's nothing sinful about eating. We must eat flesh, we must eat food to sustain our body. The Bible also tells us that there's nothing necessarily evil about drinking and even about drinking wine so long as it's done in moderation, right? Done in the proper way and not to excess. However, what is the common problem that we see in this world? What is the problem that men have? The good blessings of God that give to men, they exploit those not able to hold them in moderation in the fear of the Lord with self-control, but instead they indulge in these things, and so that good blessing of God becomes a vice that cripples them, right? That captures and gluttony, gluttony and uh, drinking of wine, intoxication, getting drunk, right? In both cases, those who are given to these vices give themselves over to poverty because they spend all of their money on what? On booze and food, right? Booze and food. This is what they spend all of their money on, and because they have no self-control, They cannot practice moderation over their appetites. Their God is their belly. They come to poverty and to ruin. They're clothed with rags because they spend all of their resources to satisfy their appetites. Right? Again, there's nothing wrong with spending some of your resources. You have to do that to satisfy your appetite. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying a good meal. If if otherwise, why did God create all the good foods? that are in the world today. All of the types of meat and the spices that we use to make those things flavorful and to make them good. There's nothing wrong with enjoying those things and doing it in the proper way. But it is when people indulge in the eating of food and the drinking of wine that they then become vices. And so he's warning us about such things. And that would be true not only of food and drink, but of of anything. Not anything that is good and lawful, that has a proper place, All of the good gifts that God has given to men can be exploited and used in the wrong way. So we must uh, practice it in the fear of the Lord and live in this present life uh, to serve God and to live for him and then to use whatever gifts he bestows upon us in the proper way in the fear of God. Verse 22 and 23. Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. Here, he calls him to listen to his father and not to despise his mother when she is old. There is a temptation, especially in our youth. When we are younger, uh, many young people, as I was at one time as well, not that I'm old because in the Bible I would still be considered young, and in, in many ways this is still applicable to me as well. But especially when we go from childhood to early adulthood, you know, when you're a teenager, you're really a punk at that, at that stage in life. No, not, none of you are, but I was at that point, right? And one of my uh, punkish ways was seen in that I believed that I was the fount of all wisdom and knowledge. Your parents, they don't know anything, right? They're fuddy-duddies, they're sticks in the muds, they have no wisdom or understanding, but I know the path to chart for myself, and I know how it is that I ought to live. But this is not the case, right? It is the hubris, the arrogance of youth to think that they don't need the instruction, the wisdom of their father and mother. 
The father and mother have lived a life. They have more experiences. They have more experiences in the world. They know what's going on. And it's good and right for children to depend upon and to rely on and to use the wisdom of their father and mother, especially if their father and mother are believers and righteous men and women who have the word of God and who have lived their life according to that word. So don't be arrogant in our youth or when we're coming of age, when we're figuring things out, right? When we're children, typically we just do whatever our parents say. This is common when, when we're little ones. But there is a point when we pass from childhood to adulthood. And there is a sense in which we do become our own people. And a young boy must become a man. And he must become his own man. And at one point, he's going to have to leave his home and establish his own home and not be under the authority of his father and mother. There is a point where a girl becomes a woman and she comes of age. However, when that is happening, we should not despise those who are older than us, those who have wisdom and understanding and who have gone through these things before. Instead, we ought to rely upon them, especially if father and mother have proven themselves to be righteous, to be wise, to have some uh, competency in what they're doing, right? That, that they've proven that they know how to raise children. The mom has proven to know how to manage a home. Well, then why wouldn't a young daughter who is now establishing her own home, why wouldn't she want to rely upon that mother? Or if there's a young man and his father has worked hard, he's been diligent, he's been industrious, he's built up a, a good uh, estate, He knows that it was a good life that he lived when he was there under his father. It was a happy home. He wasn't a tyrant and an oppressor, but he had a very happy childhood. Well, then why would a man, when he comes into adulthood, when he establishes his own home, why wouldn't he consult his father and listen to him and rely upon his wisdom and his understanding? This is the way that we should be in the way that we live in this world, and especially not only with our natural parents, but in the church with those that are our spiritual parents. Because you are my father and my mother, and I am some of your father and mother, and we are brothers and sisters. We all are related one to another in the body of Christ. So when we see the wise ones among us, and typically that comes with age and experience, then we should rely and we should depend upon them. Buy truth, he says, and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. By it, he simply means by that, do whatever it takes to get these things. People will part with valuable possessions in in order to buy things that are more valuable to them. If their money is most valuable and there is some object that requires their money to obtain and their money is more valuable to them than this object, then they're not going to part with their money. But if that object is more valuable to them, then they will gladly part with their money in order to purchase the object that they desire. This is the way it is in this present world. Well, he's using that same analogy in terms of obtaining truth and wisdom and understanding. Whatever it takes, whatever we have to part with, however we have to order our life in order to obtain truth and wisdom, instruction and understanding, then that is what we should do. Right, We should do whatever it takes to gain these things and never sell them. Never part with these things for the measly things of this present world. But do whatever, whatever it takes to gain them. Right? It is our Lord Christ who says in John chapter 8, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. This is why we should obtain the truth. It is in our knowledge of the truth that we receive our freedom from sin from slavery, from death, from the condemnation of the law. 
That is the freedom that we need, the freedom that raises us up and makes us children of God. And whatever we have to do to obtain that wisdom, then we should do it. If we have to cross land and sea, we should do it. If we have to crawl over broken glass, we should do it. However, in our case, that's not what we have to do at all. All we have to do is gather together, open our Bibles that we have in our homes. We have it on our phones. We can listen to it at all, all the time. It is very easy for us to obtain the wisdom and truth of the Bible. And yet, what is so often lacking in the churches today? No one's buying. Though it is there, and it is there in great uh, uh, abundance, ease of access, very, very few people are buying. Most of them are selling because they have no desire for it. But that should not be true of us. Verse 24. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad, and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. A righteous father who raises a righteous son, he will have great joy in that. There will be great rejoicing. More rejoicing in a righteous father, in the righteousness of his son, than in his success, in his education, than his prosperity, than whatever honors and accolades that he receives in this present world. There is a place for us to have joy and rejoicing in some of those things, if they're obtained rightly. But primarily, what the believing father, what a Christian father should rejoice in, is that he has a son who is a child of God, who is a true believer, who is a righteous man, and who is walking in the fear of the Lord. And if that son is a commoner, if he's a plumber or a carpenter, and not the president, then who cares, right? The main thing is that he is a child of God. And that is what ought to be the source of greatest rejoicing of Christian fathers to their Christian children. Also, the mother, the mother as well, she will rejoice. She's the one that gave you birth. You have an obligation to her. She brought you into the world. She raised you. She fed you. She cared for you. So bring her great joy by not departing that she has passed down to you but instead embracing that faith like Timothy did with his mother and his grandmother. It first was found in them, and then it was found in Timothy. And would that not have been a great source of rejoicing to his mother and his grandmother to see that their son and their grandson, that they devoted so much time, so much care, so much attention to? What if he would have grown up and been a drunkard, a swindler, an adulterer, lived a wild and reckless life? imprisoned, right? Executed for whatever crimes he had committed. Well, then all that time would have been wasted, squandered on him. But for him to walk in the path of the righteous, to become a godly man in a preacher of righteousness, right? One who was used to build up the church of Jesus Christ. That would have given them great joy, great rejoicing, great honor. And this would be the same for us as well. Verses 26 to 28. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. Here he says, give me your heart, my son. Let your eyes delight in my ways. Not that the prophet is the chief one that we should give our heart to, our chief one is the Lord Jesus Christ. We must give our heart to him. We must 
uh, their eyes to light Christ. But when the Father, when his heart belongs to Christ, when he delights in the ways of Christ, the Son sees Christ in his Father, then it is one and the same. To give the heart to Christ is also to give the heart to the Father. Right? This is what the Lord uh, prophesies through uh, the prophet Malachi, that when John the Baptist would come, he would turn the hearts of the fathers toward their children. So that when the child is a believer in walking in righteousness, his heart is bound up with his believing father. And when we are delighting in the way of the father and the father's way being righteous, then we're also delighting in the ways of God. And this is what he is calling us to do. Then, specifically here, 27 and 28, the harlot is a deep pit, an adulterous woman, a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. Already he's dealt with gluttony and he's dealt with drunkenness. Now, this is another common vice that we see in the, in the world today. And that is immorality. Immorality, sexual immorality, harlotry, prostitution, adultery. All of these things are there. They are plagues and blights upon society. And there are many people over the course of human history and many people even in our own generation, who are captivated and captured by these sins and who are drugged down to hell by these three sins, by gluttony, by drunkenness, and by prostitution or adultery. And many times, these all go together. That a gluttonous person who shows that he has no control over his physical appetite, his belly, also has no control over his sexual appetite. Right? One who has no control over drink but gives himself to drunkenness, is also not going to have control in terms of morality as well. So that many times these vices go hand in hand, and they are often committed simultaneously or at the same time. That when those are visiting harlots and prostitutes or committing adultery, they're often indulging in drugs and drink and food and these kinds of revelries and parties. This is what is encompassing all of these types of things. But the harlot is a deep pit. A deep pit that men fall into and then they cannot rise up out of. She's a narrow well that men fall into to their own ruin and destruction. And once they are captivated by that harlot, it is almost impossible. It takes a miracle of God for them to be delivered from her snare. Many men fall headlong into this and it is ruinous to their souls. Right? It is a great barrier to their believing the gospel when they are given over to immorality and to adultery. She lurks as a robber. What does the adulteress rob? She robs the souls of men. She sends them to hell. Not that she is working on her own. Right? Who is behind the adulteress? Satan himself, who is the destroyer of the souls of men. But just as God uses means to accomplish his purposes on earth, so Satan uses means to accomplish his purposes on earth. His purpose is to destroy to still kill and destroy, and one of the means he uses to accomplish this very evil purpose is the adulterous woman, right? All of the trappings that they have, the beauty, the, the sensuality, the way they present themselves, which appeals to the lust of men, you know, and of course, this works both ways because women can be drawn to adultering men as well. There are male prostitutes as well for both men and women. It, it works all the way across. But typically, it's the adulterous woman who is enticing the man who is filled with lust. She robs his soul, 
and increases the faithless among men. As a result of her presence and of her sin, sin is increased on the earth. Faithlessness among men is expounded because of her temptations and the wiles by which she captures men. It is a very deadly sin. Then 29. 29 to 35 is describing the great dangers of drunkenness, the dangers that accompany wine and alcohol. And this is why it has led many people through the years to just say, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And that certainly is a legitimate way to approach it, so long as one is not making that a rule of righteousness that everyone must follow. Right? If it's a private conviction and someone says, I don't ever want to drink alcohol because I see that there are many temptations with that, then that's certainly a very legitimate way to approach it, and we ought to do that with a clean conscience in the fear of God. But if we started making that a rule by which everyone must live, then we'd be going too far because it's not a rule that is found in the Bible. 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Here he's describing someone, and they, when you read this, you're like, man, wow, what a miserable person. He must really be in a lot of pain and misery. He has woe. He has sorrow, right? Where is all of these found? In one person, right? And what brings about all of these horrible uh, situations that a man finds himself in? He has woe. He has sorrow. Contentions. He's always at fight and war, brawling with other people. He's complaining, always complaining. He has wounds without cause. Typically, you get wounds for a cause, for a reason. He has them without reason. There's no cause for him to receive the blows that, he's re- that he is receiving. Naturally, he's a very kind man. He's easy to get along with, right? There's no one has any problem with him. But all of a sudden, something has happened to him. Something has changed him, and now he has wounds without cause. He has redness of eyes. He looks miserable. His eyes are all bloodshot and red. He looks like he hasn't slept, right? He he looks like he's got a headache because he does. We think, wow, man, what a poor fella. Well, who is it? Verse 30, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. It is the one who lingers long over wine, right? That's the problem. It is the inordinate desire. It is the intoxication of wine. The one who has no control over these things, but gives himself up to alcohol, to intoxicating drink, who lingers long over it, who tastes the mixed wine that has the good flavor in it, that is mixed with these other spices and these other things that is so tasty that he just wants more and more and more and more. And as he drinks more, what happens? His woe increases, his sorrow increases, his contentions, his complaining, his wounds without cause, his redness of eyes. All of these things increase as he drinks and consumes more of the wine and mixed wine. 31, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. What captivates him is the look, the appearance, the appeal, the way it tastes and the way that it looks. Right? And if this is what controls one's view of alcohol, the taste of it and the way it looks, then you're not looking at it rightly. You have to have a sober mind about these things. Literally, quite literally, a sober mind. You have to think about it in the proper way and see 
the dangers that accompany it and see that this must be practiced and used in moderation. But if I am letting my taste, the way that it looks, if that is what is guiding me in my use of wine, then I'm easily going to be given over to indulgence, to a sinful uh, excess in regards to this drink. It sparkles in the cup. It goes down smoothly. But 32, at the last, it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. Right? It is a fleeting pleasure of sin. It may taste good when you're drinking it. It may go down smoothly at the beginning. But in the end of you, it's going to bite you. Right? Like a serpent or like a viper. It's going to be deadly and dangerous to you as you participate in it the results and what it produces in you, the effects, are going to be like the biting of a viper or a venom. And this is how all sin is. Not only drunkenness, but gluttony, harlotry, all sins, there are fleeting pleasures in them. There are momentary pleasures followed by condemnation, by guilt, by remorse, by all of those types of things that come in the committing of sin. It is the fleeting pleasures of sin. This is what Moses was running away from. This is why he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy all the riches of Egypt because he did not want the fleeting pleasures of sin. He wanted the eternal pleasures of the new heavens and new earth, the eternal pleasures of salvation. Those things were more valuable to him than the pleasures of sin. It says in Hebrews 11, 25, 32, it bites like the serpent, it stings like the viper. 33, your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things. When people get drunk, they see strange things. If you don't believe me, read Edgar Allan Poe. Just read one of his books. You'll be like, man, this guy, he's insane. Who could write such weird things? Or, uh, I don't know, I'm sure there's other people. Tim Burton, probably. I bet he drinks a lot when he writes his stuff. Who comes up with these weird ideas? Well, they are probably drunk or they're doing drugs or something, and they see strange things. They have visions. All sorts of weird things enter into their mind. They see double. They're not able to judge reality clearly. This happens, right, whenever someone is given over to intoxicating drink. Their mind utters perverse things, right? Our minds and our tongues... We all know, it's all, all of you know it of yourself, and I know it of myself as well, that if you could see what takes place in my mind sometimes and what takes place in my heart, the thoughts that come into our minds, many of those thoughts stay in our minds because we have self-control, right? And we don't utter those things. We don't dare utter those things. However, when a person gets drunk, what happens to them? They lose self-control. They lose the ability to control their tongue. And then those thoughts that are in their mind begin to be loosened and they begin to spit them out of their tongue. And they say some of the most horrible things. Again, men who are naturally in a sober state, very kind, very, uh, you know, they're not mean, they're not surly, they're not abusive to their wife and to their children. But then if they get drunk, guess what happens to them? all of a sudden, they begin to be very hateful. They say horrible things about their wife, to their wife, to their children. They'll even beat them. They'll do these kinds of horrible things that they would not do in a sober state. But then when they're drunk, they give themselves over to these kinds of things. This is what happens whenever people are giving themselves to 
intoxicating drink. This is also why many people commit murder whenever they drink. They drink and then they get in their car and they drive. And because their abilities are inhibited, then they're not able to drive clearly and plainly and they run in and they kill someone else. And they commit murder. Though they are naturally, they wouldn't murder someone. They've never done that. They've never taken a gun and shot someone, but they murdered someone with their car. And typically, they're able to drive quite finely, right? They're able to go and navigate the road. They don't swerve all over the place. But now, all of a sudden, they're driving on the wrong side of the road. And what is it that caused them to do so? It is the alcohol. But it's not alcohol's fault. It's their fault because of their lack of self-control, because their love of these things, their excess of these things, then leads them to commit horrible, horrible sins against both God and man. 34, you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the seas or like one who lies down on the top of the mast in the middle of the seas where the waves are very rocky. They go up and down. And if you're on the middle of the seas, you're tossed to and fro. Well, isn't that what a drunk person is like? The way they walk, they're staggering about here and there. It's like they're walking on waves, right? They're stumbling and they're bumbling all over the place. That's why they make them do those sobriety tests. You have to walk on a straight line. Well, these guys, they can't even do that. It's very, very simple to do for someone who's sober. But when they're drunk, they can't even walk in a straight line. Or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. Very dangerous, right? The top mast of the ship, you don't want to lie down up there. One, it's where the ship is most given, you know, the excesses or the... Uh, the greatness of the swaying of the ship is most clearly felt there on the mast. And if you're lying down up there, it's going to make you sick. And also, it's very dangerous. You might fall off and you fall down and you break your neck right there on the ship. And then everyone says, look at this fool. Why would he lie down up on top of the mast? This is what you'll be like if you are given to these things. 35. They struck me, but I didn't become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. Here, it, again, the effects. When the person is intoxicated, someone might strike him. He doesn't even become ill. He might get beat and he doesn't even know it. He's so out of his mind. Now, eventually he's going to know it because he's going to wake up and his jaw is going to hurt really bad. Or his backside, wherever they beat him, he's going to be very, very sore. But at the time, in the moment, he doesn't even know what's going on. This is how much of a stupor men can be brought into because of alcohol or because of drugs, right? Both of these are intoxicating are things that inhibit men and cause them to go into this kind of a stupor. However, what is typically the case with those who are given to drunkenness or to gluttony or to immorality? Though they are affected in such an adverse way by these sins, and here with drunkenness, he is affected in such a way. He's staggering around. He's uttering perverse things. He's seeing strange things, right? He's getting sick. People are smacking him around. He doesn't even feel it. Yet as soon as he wakes up, what does he want again? He wants to go back to his sin, right? Like the pig that goes and continually wallows in the mud. And whatever you say about the dangers of it, you try to teach them and explain to them, don't you realize that you could get diseases from this, you could die from this, you could kill someone uh, with a car wreck from this, right? And whatever other uh, sins there are, you try to talk reasonably and rationally to people. But sin is not rational. Drunkenness is not rational. Gluttony is not rational. Immorality is not rational. 
These are irrational things because they're harmful to body and they're harmful to soul and they're harmful to everyone that we love and hold dear. And yet, so often is the enslavement of men to sin that even though these sins produce such adverse effects upon our life, upon our body, upon our relationships, aren't there people, probably you could find some in Shawnee, who are walking around on the streets who never see their families again, never go home for a holiday, never see their mom or their dad or their brothers and sisters because they've given themselves over to alcohol or they've given themselves over to drugs or to some other sin and vice. And it has completely ruined their life, their relationship, their career, their education. And yet they continue in it year after year after year after year. They are enslaved to sin. They say, when will I awake so I can go and get another drink? And will give themselves over to all sorts of other sins just to supply and to feed this ongoing enslavement, indulgence toward drink or drugs or whatever else it is. This is how captivated the human heart can be toward sin. And when we see these things, one, it should be a reminder to us we don't, want, we don't want to have part in these kinds of things. We should not be given to drunkenness. We should not be addicted to drugs. We should not be gluttonous people. We should not be immoral people. All of the sins mentioned here, we should have nothing to do with those things. We ought to honor our father and mother. These are things that are positive that a Christian ought to do. Well, when we see these things and when we look out and about and see people who are enslaved to these kinds of sins, we ought to also be reminded that that could just as easily be us. And if it were not for God's grace, we would be in the same spot. And some of you, it may be that that was true of you in your former life. And it is only God's deliverance that brought you out of those things. Ephesians chapter 5, 18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Instead of being controlled by wine, we ought to be filled and controlled by the Spirit of God. That is the way of the Christian life. Not to let wine and drugs and intoxicating drink control us, change us, alter us, the way that we talk, the way that we live, the way that we walk, but to let the Spirit of God so fill us that the Spirit alters us the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we walk in this present world. That is what we need, and that is what we should desire, to be filled with God's Spirit and to walk in His ways. All right, well, with that, we will conclude for the day, and we will pray. And I'm going to ask Bruce over there if you would pray and dismiss us today.